Amen. Well, our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Mark in chapter 9, from verses 2 through 13. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, "Uh, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the son of man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, let me give another welcome again to the third through fifth graders, the kiddos who are hanging out with us. As always, I see some second graders who kind of sneak in here as well. That's okay. You're welcome. All right. I won't tell anyone. And uh, for your filling out the notes, if we haven't met yet, uh, my name is Lewis. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And so we are excited that you're here to join us. Now, here's what we, here's what we don't want is we don't want to just drag you in here one Sunday every month because it's our goal to make you as bored as possible, all right? I promise that's not what we're trying to do, okay? And if it helps, what you can do is what I did growing up in church and all my brothers and sisters, and we still have some of these today, is that we grew up in this big Roman Catholic church, and the priests would always kind of have the same jokes every week. Now, that's because we lived in a, in a beach town, and so there was a different group of people every week. But if you were a local, right, you knew the jokes that were coming and when they were coming. And so you'd always stand up and say something like this at the end of the service. Remember, folks, the sign of a good sermon is how you behave in the parking lot, right? (laughs) And so even to this day, my family, we gather for Thanksgiving and Christmas, and we say, remember, folks, right? And so maybe you pick up some jokes like that. But what we really hope that you pick up is what it means to come together as God's people, to worship God, to actually know God, to meet with God, right? That as we baptize these babies this morning, we want you to be able to see that because baptism says that when you put your faith in Jesus, he will wash you, right? He has promised to fulfill that, that all you have to do is put your faith in him. 
And we want you to be encouraged, and that's what you can know. And then maybe you can joke about Pastor Lewis and Pastor Jeff one day with your family at Thanksgiving 20 years from now, right? And so what we hope this morning is that you kind of get an experience of what actually the disciples got to get an experience with Jesus on this mountain. Because as you heard this story, there's some weird words in it, words like transfigured, right? And there's these people, Moses and Elijah, and maybe you kind of know some of them and what their stories in the Bible are. And you're like, what is going on here? And notice Jesus is like, when they're walking down, he's like, hey, don't tell anyone about this. So I'm like, what about the other disciples? You got to imagine they're asking the whole time, what happened on that mountain with Jesus? Because you guys looked terrified when you came back down. And they're like, sorry, we can't tell you. You can imagine for months they asked, wait, what happened on that mountain with Jesus? When are you going to tell us what happened on that mountain with Jesus? And maybe as we read this story, we have that same question. What, what actually happened on this mountain with Jesus? What does this mean? I mean, that he becomes white and brighter than bleach and like he's transfigured and now these guys are back from the dead. What's going on with that? And then it's just all over and they walk down and they're done. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to actually try to answer that question. What happened on the mountain with Jesus? And then what does that mean for us today? Because is that just a cool story for them or is there actually something we can mean for today? And remember, what we hope our worship time is like is, is actually a, a little bit like what it was like for these disciples on the mountain to meet with Jesus, to see Jesus in his full glory. So let's tackle that first question. What happened on the mountain with Jesus? All right? What's actually happening? What's amazing is that as uh, James Edwards, a scholar, New Testament scholar in the book of Mark says, there is nothing like this story in all of ancient literature. All right, maybe you've seen one of those, um, you know, those YouTube videos or something where it's like, hey, look how Christianity is no different than all the other religions. Other religions, they got virgin births. Other religions, they got people dying, coming back to life. Other religions have this, 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 and this, right? They, and they try and show all the different parallels to say there's nothing unique about Christianity, right? It's just the latest iteration at this point in time. Well, actually, if you look at it, there's nothing like this story in all of ancient literature. He says that there's nothing else in the Bible, outside of the Gospels, nothing in the Apocrypha, the Sugrapia, the rabbinic literature, the Qumran, the Nag Hammadi, or Hellenistic literature as a whole. And if you're like me, you don't even know what those other books are, right? So there's nothing like it. And so what actually happened? Well, one clue is this idea of the word transfigured, right? Of course, Jesus goes up there and it's just blinding bright lights, you know, Luke actually talks about in his story in the Transfiguration where the disciples were like woke up to this, that it just is blinding and amazing and brilliant and supernatural, unlike anything that they've ever experienced. And again, unlike anything ever described in the Bible. So what kind of glory was this? Well, that word transfigured is actually the same similar word that we would use for metamorphosis, right? And Kids, you know, metamorphosis, right, is, is the caterpillar turning into the butterfly, changing into something completely different and amazing. But what makes Jesus different from the butterfly in this sense is that Jesus isn't becoming something new. Jesus is instead pulling back the curtain on what he's always been, the glorious God of heaven who has stepped out of his glory 
clouded it and stepped into this world with us. That's who this Jesus is, and that they get a glimpse of what is Jesus like in heaven. Just even a glimpse, because of course, you've you got to be in heaven to get the full experience. We couldn't even handle all of that right now. So how do they get that? That he's glorified. And we're told that his, even his clothes, like he's so glorious that even his clothes are glorious. And if you read Matthew and Luke, they talk about Jesus' face shining like the sun, being brilliant. All of this is to speak about God. And I love that idea of, of Jesus' face shining like the sun because it picks up that, that old blessing in, from the book of Numbers that we usually end our services with in a lot of ways. Right? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace. That here is the face of God to bring that blessing to reality. But you see, there's some more details that clue us into what's happening here than just the word transfigured. And they're actually details that Mark, if you've been following along with us in this story, rarely uses. Because notice where he starts with, after six days. All right, the gospel of Mark all action, right? The gospel of Mark is for people from, you know, the Northeast. They're going, they're moving, it's happening, we're moving to this, we're doing that, right? Never resting. It's always immediately, therefore, right afterwards, immediately. And yet, all of a sudden, the immediates stop. And he goes, now after six days. And then there's some more details. We have three specific individuals, Peter, James, and John. And then we have some more details. A cloud comes. And we hear a voice. This is my son. Listen to him. Now, all of this parallels an old book in the Bible, the book of Exodus, in chapter 24, where Moses goes on to a mountain after six days. With, and he's told with three of his, of his, of his followers Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the cloud descends, and Moses meeting with God, his face begins to shine. You see, all of this parallels what we would see Moses doing. And then we're even told that Moses in the book of Deuteronomy said, you know, as great as I am, there's actually going to be a greater prophet who's going to come. And in Deuteronomy 18, he says, it's going to be a prophet like me, but greater and you should listen to him. And here now we have the voice saying, listen to him. Now, how did they know it was Moses and Elijah? Right? Isn't that a good question? Because like, did they have like pictures and they're like, hey, right? Like, let's get your selfies. How did they know? Well, it says that they were talking with them. So there's definitely some mystery here. We don't get all the details, Right? You know, in some ways, this is kind of like listening to a painting, right? Or watching music. Like, eh, it's just not going to translate all the way through. It's, it's too amazing. And yet, we get some details that says that they were talking with Jesus. Moses and Elijah show up. Now, Moses shows up, and it makes sense because what are they talking about? Well, we're actually told in the book of Luke that they were talking about his departure and the word there for departure is the same word that we would use for exodus. And that just as Moses led the people out of slavery 
into freedom in the promised land, right? And as he did these many miracles, Jesus is coming and he's the greater Moses, who's not going to just lead us out of a slavery in Egypt, but out of slavery to sin, out of all the darkness that this world has into a promised land. Now, what becomes even more incredible is that what we get to see that the disciples didn't even realize at the time is that how does, a, how does an exodus happen? Well, there has to be a lamb. This is why John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus, he says, behold the lamb of God, the one who's going to make it possible for the new exodus. Out of the slavery to all the things that ruin our lives, of sin and death into the promised land that God has intended for us. And of course, this glorious God who's transfigured, this one Jesus, he's not just the Moses who's going to lead the people, but he's the lamb who's going to be slain for the people. You see, in just months after this would happen, darkness would descend, just like darkness descended at that first time of Exodus where the firstborn son, if he did not take refuge under the blood of the lamb, right, would be executed? Well, here we have God's firstborn son being executed, crying out in the darkness for us that this God on the mountain would actually come down, not just off a mountain, but step out of heaven to die on the cross for us so that we could be part of the new people of God with God forever in this new paradise, that that's what he's bringing about. And you see, Moses, when they talk about Moses' face, his face shines, but it's more like the moon in that he reflects the glory that he received from the cloud. And so Moses had to wear this veil over his face because it terrified people. They're like, ah, too much glory. Cover that up, right? And then Jesus, though, He's not reflecting this. He's radiating it, that he is the God of the mountain who's come to us. So Jesus's glory is being revealed here. That's what's happening on this mountain with Jesus, is his glory is being revealed. But notice the the details that Mark picks out, but then also notice the details that the disciples picked out right? This amazing, incredible thing happens, and they start walking down the mountain. And what stands out to them? What stands out to them? Well, they're like, Jesus, what's all this talk about death? Look at the glory here, right? Look at the glory. Look at your power. I mean, we thought you were powerful before with, you know, feedings and healings and miracles. But I mean, we we just knew that was scratching the surface, And so Jesus has been talking about his death, which is confusing for them because they're like, no, we see power. Why would there be death and suffering? And then notice, who are they talking about? They're not talking about Moses. They're talking about Elijah. They're asking questions about Elijah. Now, this might be a little weird for some of us because we look at this and we're like, Moses, right? He's the guy, wrote first five books of the Bible, right? Everyone, every Easter, we see that there's, you know, all these movies about him, the Prince of Egypt, right? Even Disney got in on the action. Like, I mean, how is that? That's Moses. Who's this Elijah guy? And why does Elijah stand out to them more than Moses stands out to them? 
Is it just because they're like, yeah, we get Moses, but like, why did Elijah come? Well, if you were to read the Bible, right, through the Old Testament, and you come to the end of your Old Testament, you'd come to the end of this book, Malachi. And the book of Malachi ends with these verses, verses four through six. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Here we have Moses. And then he goes on to say, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. And here's Elijah. Now, a few weeks ago, anyone who celebrated Passover, right, you would have noticed two things happen during any Passover Seder, right? First is you'd notice that there's an empty chair. Now, it's usually supposed to be the nicest chair in the place, right? And it's empty. There's a place setting, there are cups, but no one sits in it. And you're like, what a waste. Why are we all crowding our elbows in here when, like, there's extra space? It's because it's the chair for Elijah. And what happens is during the meal, someone gets up, and towards the end, they go and they check, and they, they open the door to see, is Elijah coming? Because everyone knew that Elijah would come before the day of the Lord. That Elijah would come, as the disciples say, they even asked Jesus, they're like, hey, isn't Elijah going to come and restore all things? And so what's, like, does that, so what's happening now? They're trying to piece together, right, what is exactly Jesus coming to do? And Jesus is trying to break through their grids, right, of power then leads to domination, which leads to restoration. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Power is actually going to be laid aside, and I'm going to die, and that's what's going to lead to restoration. And Elijah does come, and he says, John the Baptist comes in the spirit of Elijah. He fulfills all those prophecies, and look what they did to John the Baptist. They beheaded him. What makes you think the Son of Man is going to be treated any differently. So look at this full picture we have here then. What's happening on this mountain with Jesus? Look at the full picture. Here you have Moses and Elijah. Moses representing all of the law. Elijah representing the prophets. And then you have the disciples representing the apostles. All of the testaments together, old and new. Everyone that would bear witness to who Jesus is, the old pointing to his coming, the new testifying about how he has come and what he will eventually fully accomplish, all pointing to Jesus, his glory being fully revealed. It's this incredible, amazing picture that we can only even get a glimpse of now as we read this story, all pointing to Jesus. It makes sense with what they say in Hebrews chapter 1. That long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. See, Moses, when he was on the mountain, asked to see God's glory, but he couldn't see it. He said, I'll let you see the back of me, but you can't see my face. 
Elijah, likewise, is on the same mountain as Moses years later, pleading in, in need of seeing God's glory. And in the same way, he can't behold it all. It says that the glory to him comes in a still, small voice. And yet here they are now, finally beholding fully this glory on a mountain of God. Jesus is revealed as the glorious God, and he's revealed as the way to get it. That the way we experience this glory of God is through Jesus. That he is the God, right, who's on the other side of the gap, and he's the God who helps us get to that other side because he's leading a new exodus. He's leading a new exodus. And so what this means for us is that everything in our lives, right, as everything in the Bible is centered on Jesus, everything in our lives is we're invited to center on Jesus. One of the examples that we use of this commonly, right, is, is this idea of glory really has this idea, this sense of weightiness, right? And of course, we know weight, right, relates to gravity, and weight relates to how everything holds together. And so, of course, how does our solar system sustain itself? Well, it's because at the center is the most weighty thing, the sun. And thus, all the planets orbit properly, and they don't collide into one another. And the same way it works in our lives is that when Jesus is the center when he's the thing that has the most weight, the most pull, the thing, as we talked about last week, that everything in our lives is worth living for, right? It begins to bring in right, that glory. We live as God intended us to, that the kingdom of God breaks into our lives now. All right, what happened with Jesus on the mountain, right? As the disciples would be asking when they all came down, so what happened on that mountain with Jesus, Peter? The ultimate answer is, is that Christ's glory was revealed, broke through, so we could see just a glimpse of the power that he actually has, and that he's the one who gives us access to that power. He fulfills everything that all the law and the prophets pointed to. He's the one who's come to restore all things. Okay, What's that mean for us today, then? Great. Nice, cool Bible history, theology lesson, caught us up. But what's that mean for us today? Like that great experience for them. That sounds neat. That sounds cool, right? If you're in third through fifth grade, you're already flipped over the sermon notes, and you're drawing pictures of something else by this time. So like, come on, what's this mean for us today? That's the second thing we're going to do. Now notice, the first question we asked was, what happened on the mountain with Jesus? The second question we have to ask is, well, what would happen in your life if you understood that that Jesus really is with you? Because if that's what happened on the mountain with Jesus, how would your life be different if you actually believed that that God who we just spent 20 minutes unpacking, fulfills all the law and the prophets, right? Dies for us. What would you believe? What would be different about your life if you actually grasped that? That that Jesus is the one who's with you now by faith. How would things be different? Well, 
let's work through a few of those ways. What, what does this mean for us now? That's spectacular, but let's get a little practical now. All right? So notice here in the beginning, it says he was transfigured before them. That's not a throwaway line. Mark is actually saying, look, Jesus intentionally brought these guys up on the mountain for a reason. And it wasn't just so they could see the fireworks, right? But there's actually something he wants them to walk away with, and therefore also something we can walk away with. But before we get to exactly what Jesus had planned for his disciples, I want to slow us down even more and ask this question. How many people are on this mountain? How many real-life, actual people on the mountain? I'm hearing it. There we go. Six. Yes. All right. There are six actual people on the mountain. Now, can I be honest? I read this story, and I see three and a half. Because I'm like, Jesus, I mean, not a real person. Like, he's Jesus. Like, who could be like that? Like, I resonate with Peter. You know, famous people don't know what to say. Uh, tense. How about tense, guys? Um, right? You know, you don't know what to do. Can I get anyone something to drink? Um, so, yeah, there's actually six real-life, actual people on the mountain. And here's why I point this out. is because notice the first people Jesus is with, it talks about. So he brings Peter, James, John with him on the mountain. It says with him. But then it also says that Elijah and Moses were talking with him. Now, we don't have time to unpack everything about the life of Moses and Elijah, but let me just say this. Both of their lives end pretty terribly. Moses, he does all that work, let my people go, Red Sea, wilderness wandering, and God's like, sorry, can't go into the promised land. You're disqualified. Elijah, likewise, he does all this work fighting, you know, the evil king and queen of Israel at the time, you know, brings down fire on a mountain, leads an uprising and a rebellion, and yet at the end of his life, nothing's really all that changed to him. And both of these guys, Moses and Elijah, at points in their lives were suicidal. They just thought, end it, God. I'm such a failure, just end it. Or this is so hard, let me out of this. For all their heroism, in many ways, they both end their life with their ministries incomplete. And what I think it's really easy for us to run by is that Moses and Elijah here aren't felt bored 3D versions of Moses and Elijah, right? The storybook Sunday school class, right? You take the felt, you throw it up there. Look, there's Moses, there's Elijah. Not actually real people. They're just kind of props. But here Jesus is making it clear. These guys aren't just props in this story. Jesus is the main character for sure. Absolutely. And that should be true of all of our lives. Jesus is the main character. But that doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't care about our life and what actually happens. And that doesn't just stop when you die. That Jesus brings these guys back so that they can actually get what they always wanted in life was beholding God's glory. And Jesus brings these guys back and he goes, you know, you wanted the nation to change. You wanted to lead the people into the promised land. It's going to happen, guys. What you did in this life was not in vain because it was done in service to the most high God, the one who is on this mountain again now. Your lives do count and they did matter.
he brings them back to make this clear that they are not forgotten. They're not just props in this story, but they're actual real-life people that God cared about when they were alive and God cares about after they were alive, still alive in heaven with him, of course. That God actually cares about their stories. And when he's talking with them, they're not just props, but he's actually making it clear to them how their lives mattered and counted and they, they get that glory. So for those of us who have loved ones right on the other side of glory, we can know that God still cares about them. And at the same time, for those of us now who are feeling much the same that Moses and Elijah felt, we can know that our lives do actually count and matter and have meaning. Because even though they're suffering, and even though it looks like failure, wasn't that exactly the way of Jesus on the cross? as he says here, that the Son of Man must also suffer. That that's not surprising. That doesn't mean our lives are failing. But instead, we can rest in that despite whatever it looks like down here. Done in service to Jesus, with Jesus at the center, our lives count. And we're not just props in God's story, but he actually does care about us. So those are the first people we see Jesus with, right? Well, but we also see, and they make it clear, Jesus is with the disciples. So what's in this for them? What matters for them? Right? Well, what I love is that Jesus isn't ashamed of these guys. Right? Because, you know, here's Peter stuttering, stumbling, and Peter's request makes sense. He's like, look, last time glory came down on the mountain, we built a tent, you know, which is just another way of saying we built a tabernacle for the glory of the Lord to reside in. We're seeing the same glory. Shouldn't we build the new tabernacle? Like, all right, let's get this thing rolling. But Jesus is like, no, that's, that's not how this is going to work. Instead, we're going to head back down the mountain. And so Jesus is here to change the disciples' paradigm for what it looks like for the kingdom of God to come in. So it's not going to be power and glory. It's first going to be death and darkness. And that's how the kingdom is going to come in. Right? But notice Jesus gives them a glimpse of the ending. See, what I, what, what I see Jesus doing here is what I often do with my, my daughter. She's seven, and our son, you know, he's 10. And so we have a problem watching movies, is, um, right? There's just some movies that, you know, can be a little dark and a little scary sometimes. And, um, and so if we're going to watch a movie like that, I kind of have to lean over to my daughter and give her, like, the ending, basically. And so whether we're reading through a book, and it's kind of a dark and scary part of the book, right, or whether we're watching a movie, I have to lean over and I have to say, Elsa and Anna are going to be okay. <laughs> and Anna's going to get married in the end, right? Or I have to lean over and I have to say, hey, Mulan's going to be okay. She's going to save them all. And her and the captain are going to get married in the end, right? <laughs> Noticing a pattern with Disney now, um, right? And this got me into trouble because uh, we were watching a movie recently, and I didn't exactly know the ending, but I also didn't know it was going to get this dark and scary. And I'm like, ah, what do I do? Do I lean over and tell her it's going to be okay, and then become a liar? Because I did that once with my wife, right? <laughs> I had to watch Top Gun, one of my favorite movies all time. I forgot to mention what happens to Goose. And she turns to me with a horrified look on her face, 
why did you make me watch this? Right? And I'm like, okay, we could have a repeat with that all over again, or I can just trust, yeah, yeah, yeah no, 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 Disney, they're going to come through for me. All right, so it was good. It was all right. Shang-Chi's sister didn't die, right? No, I don't let my seven-year-old watch Marvel movies. So, no, Jesus is knowing, all right, these guys, times are going to get dark and scary and terrible, and they're going to need to know the ending. And Jesus gives them a glimpse of the ending, that all the saints, Old and New Testament, gather together around Jesus, praising the Lamb of God. It's that picture we see in the book of Revelation, that everything is made new, that God has that power to take the worst moment in history, the crucifixion of the Son of God, and yet turn it into the most beautiful, amazing, glorious moment that's celebrated for all of eternity. And he can do the same thing in your life. Because he did it in Moses and Elijah's life. He does it in the disciples' life because, of course, Jesus lived this very life to make that possible. And that we do it in service with him. But I love this. Jesus doesn't just give them a glimpse of like, okay, there's the ending. Get after it, boys. No, Jesus goes down the mountain with them. Jesus is so committed to walking the disciples through darkness that he's willing to leave his glory and walk through that darkness before them. Jesus is so committed to their lives having meaning and counting for something. He's so committed to the kingdom of God coming in to their, their hearts that he's willing to walk down the mountain away from glory to the cross to die for them. And of course, when he resurrects, it's, it's the same promise all over again. He doesn't say, okay, great, now go get them, boys. We hear at the end of Matthew chapter 28, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You see, so how would your life be different? if you actually could grasp that this is the kind of Jesus who's with you now, the kind of Jesus who has all that glory, honor, and power, and majesty, and yet is willing to lay it aside, face darkness and a cross and death for you, with the promise that just as he rose again to renew all things, that he's renewing all things in your life, and that even when the story is incomplete at the end, which, let's face it, all of us end with this life with an incomplete story. We don't get to see it all finished. We can know that God is writing the ending and finishing and making all things true in him. Let's pray. Father, as we come to you now, just even hoping for a glimpse of what it was like for the disciples, we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would make the eyes of our heart able to see your glory. To see that you are the King, Most High God, who doesn't just step off a mountain, but stepped out of heaven to live this life and die for us. God, and that you are with us now. So help us to center our lives around you, Father, 
We ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Amen.